podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. With the time that we have left, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the point as much as is possible. And I'd like to begin by spending about 10 minutes or so framing Advent. So how many of you, this is your first time experiencing Advent with Antioch? Can I see your hand? Guys, that's like half the people in this church. It is amazing. And uh, we're so grateful to get to share some of our traditions with you. And as you have joined us, surely our traditions will change over the year as a result of you being added to this body. So Advent is simply the time of year that begins the Christian calendar. So as we all know, we have fiscal calendar, we have the actual calendar, you know, January through December. There's all kinds of ways for keeping time. Some schools, their fiscal calendar would be, you know, through the end of May or through the end of July, just according to how the rhythm of the accounting system works. But in the church, we have our own way of keeping time. And we call this the church calendar. And here at Antioch, we don't participate in all of the facets of the church calendar, but as we have revelation and as we think that it is beneficial for us as a body, we choose to, per- to participate in particular. Man, that was, that was fun. I should have thought through that before I said it. We choose to participate in particular seasons of the church calendar. And this is the first season of the calendar. It actually begins with Advent. So what is Advent? Advent simply means coming. And when we talk about coming, we mean that in three regards. One, we remember Christ's first coming. So we join in solidarity with the people of Israel that were experiencing 400 years of silence and awaiting the Messiah to come. They were living in exile and oppression, and it was it was promised that a Messiah was going to come. And as we know from reading the Gospels, they most of them had a really misguided picture of what that was going to look like, but they were longing and waiting nonetheless. So that is one way that we come into agreement with their longing. So we remember the first coming of Christ. And then second, of course, as we saying so much today, we anticipate the second coming of Christ. So if you are a Christian, you believe that Christ is coming again, not to destroy the earth, but to bring renewal to what he began, what God the Father began in the Garden of Eden. So God's intentions will be renewed and restored. And we don't know exactly what that will look like, when it will happen, what we will look like. There's a lot of things we don't know. But what we do know is that Christ is coming again to bring the fullness of the kingdom to fruition. But there is a third type of coming that we await and we treat in Advent, and that is the coming of Christ into our lives on a regular, ongoing basis. That we are learning, as we focus on the other two, we're learning how to anticipate and to look for Christ's work in our lives as individuals, as families, and as a church body to learn to discern his work among us. So there are three types of coming that Jesus has done or is doing that we are learning to look at in the season of Advent. So Advent is about waiting. 
And waiting is really hard for us. I don't know if you've ever noticed that as a Westerner, that waiting is not something uh, that is normal or that we are encultured into. We're actually encultured the exact opposite than to wait, right? Like patience is quote unquote a virtue, but it's really not. Practically speaking, in our culture, patience is not a virtue. Patience just means that you don't have the resources you need to get it done now. Right? That's not the Christian way of thinking, but that is what our culture is constantly putting pressure on us to not have to wait. So part of what we're doing in this season is that we're learning that the rhythms of God and that the virtues and the ethics of the kingdom of God are good for us. And so in Advent, we learn to participate in that kind of longing. Reminds us that the seasons of God's greatest and most profound activity emerge from within the darkness. You might notice that today during worship and even now, it's slightly darker in here. We have fluorescent lights, so there's only so much we can do. But we purposely chose to, have to lower the lighting as a symbol that Advent begins in the dark. That the Christian year begins in the dark. That we don't jump right to Christmas. But that when the light of the world came into the world, he came into darkness. And that also is really hard for us. Because so much of the evangelical church that many of us came into faith in the evangelical church came into a belief system that Jesus makes everything in our lives better. And there is, of course, a way that that is true, that ultimately Christ is the only source of hope and the only source of life. But as Pastor shared just a minute ago, what that doesn't mean is that we won't have struggles, that we won't have periods of darkness in our lives. And for you, if you are fortunate, it to, to have very rare and few and far between seasons, the people sitting right next to you have probably recently gone through a really dark time, that there is darkness present among us. And as the people of God, we are not called to turn our back on the darkness, but we are called to enter into the darkness with the light of Christ. And that is another thing that we learn in the season of Advent. Advent is not, as I shared in the pre-service meeting in my, my reading this week in preparation for this sermon, said that we want Advent to be like a baby shower. That we want, and, and yes, that's funny because Christmas is about a birth, but there is that element of anticipation that when there is a baby shower, it signals the baby can come anytime. And while that is true for us, there is an element of preparation that we have to engage in to really get all that there is to get out of Christmas. And I don't like the way that I worded that because Christmas is not about getting, but for us to fully participate with the spirit of Christmas, with the spirit of Christ coming into a dark and broken world, and likewise Christ coming into dark and broken lives, that for us to partner with that faithfully, there is a season of preparation that we need, and that is Advent. So what happens when we participate in Advent? I've got a number of things here. I'll try and read them slowly enough for the handful of you that want to write them down. Advent teaches us to be a people of hope and expectation, yet a people that, does not, that do not ignore 
our present circumstances. So Advent calls us to be a, a people of hope and expectation, yet refuses to allow us to ignore the reality of life. It is not a blind turning away and quoting and ignoring the difficulty. It is looking difficulty in the face and saying, you don't get the last word. That's what Advent is about. Advent is about looking into the darkness and saying, Christ is there. His light just hasn't come in fullness yet. Christ is in the midst of the darkness. So that's number one. Number two, Advent exposes the ways that we live as if Jesus never came and isn't going to come again. We, of course, as believers, would never confess that. We would never say that Jesus didn't come. But there are areas of our lives where we live as if Jesus never came and as if he's not coming back. And Advent helps to expose those areas in our lives. Number three, Advent teaches us to give voice to the struggles of life, the pain, loneliness, need, fill in the blank, all of these things that are around us. Advent teaches us to give voice to the struggles of life. It is okay to speak about your reality in real ways. As Christians, we of all people don't have to sugarcoat things. There is a difference between unnecessary complaining and speaking out about the reality of life. And there is a way of doing that from a place of despair, and there is a way of doing that from a place of hope. And in Advent, we want to learn how to do that faithfully from a place of hope, not a place of despair. Advent, next, Advent makes room for us to live in the tension between God's promises and their ultimate fulfillment. This is difficult. Advent teaches us to live in that tension, that place of difficulty between God's promises and their ultimate fulfillment. Now we know that for the original coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, that was the reality for the people of Israel. That for thousands of years, they were waiting. They were waiting on the promises that were originally given to Abraham to be fulfilled. And we read throughout scripture about their struggle and about the reality of doubt and faith and exile. And then being on the mountaintop with King Solomon, we read all about that walk. And the season of Advent helps us to do the same as we await Christ's second coming. And then lastly, Advent teaches us to actively look for God when his activity is not obvious or visible. Advent teaches us to actively look for God when his activity is not obvious or visible. What Advent ultimately teaches us is that there is more happening than meets the eye. That while Caesar is on the throne and Rome is dominating, that there is a baby that is about to be born in the backwoods of Bethlehem. That There wasn't even room in the inn for this baby. And the, the great irony of the whole thing is that this baby is the true king that no one acknowledged. Now, obviously, we know this. This is not new to us. But do we live as if that is the way that God works among us? That what makes the front page of the news is not always going to be the place that God is working the most. 
And that doesn't mean that God's not working in those areas. It means we have to be people who are discerning and prayerful and watching and saying, God, how are you at work here? They're reporting this, but I know that you haven't left those people. I know that you haven't left that situation to be dealt with on its own. I know that you are at work in whatever that is. How are you at work, God? So I'd like us to turn to a very peculiar passage in our Bibles, Luke chapter 21. So the beginning of Advent always begins with one of the three synoptic gospels, apocalyptic passages. Are you excited about this? (laughs) Tell me you're excited about this. I'm mostly being tongue in cheek here, but. So there is uh, this passage from Luke chapter 21 And I'm not going to have time to provide all of the context to paint the most robust picture, but I'm going to do my best to help us see this passage for what it really is. We're going to begin reading in verse 25, and we're going to read through 36. So Luke chapter 21, 25 through 36. I'll begin. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then Jesus told them this parable. Look at the fig tree in all the leaves. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So real quick, I'm just going to pause. That Jesus inserts this parable into a verse, which was uh, going on for about 10 to 12 verses before we started. And it seems completely out of place. But Jesus is saying in the same way that you're able to tell what actual season it is by looking at the fig tree, so it will be with these other signs about the kingdom of God. So that's where this little fig tree thing fits in here. So we're going to begin back in verse 32, right where we left off. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Merry Christmas! (laughs) Or more appropriately, Happy New Year, right? Uh, I told you, you should be excited about this. But quite honestly, this is a passage that if, if we all closed our eyes, we would say, yeah, when it's that time to read this passage in my devotional reading, I skip over it. <laughs> and we don't preach from this passage very much. And there is this passage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with their nuances, of course. But all three of the synoptic gospels record this moment where Jesus is speaking to them with this apocalyptic language. And I'd like to suggest to you that today's passage, although it is a sobering message, it might not be about what you thought it was about. Um, That this passage is ultimately not about the end of the world, 
at least not as we think of it, not in a left behind sense, but this is about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay, so Jesus, here, here the, the clue is in verse 32. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So what exactly is he talking about? Because this sounds a lot like Revelation. And it sounds a lot like some of the passages in Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. And uh, I would suggest to you that Jesus is foretelling and foreshadowing here that the temple is about to be destroyed. There are other clues. If we go back just a little bit earlier in chapter 21, it says some of the disciples were, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with these beautiful stones with gifts dedicated to God, right? They're, they're speaking of how remarkable this temple is. And then Jesus, of course, bursts in with great news. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So Jesus is quite clearly, and scholars are pretty agreed upon this, that Jesus is prophesying to them that in just a few years, about 30 to 35 years, the temple and the, the whole of Jerusalem is going to be overcome by the Roman government that right now is in power, but they've not quite exercised the fullness of their power over Jerusalem and, and Israel. And they are going to come, and like a thief in the night, not what you think, they're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to occupy Jerusalem. And so how does this matter for us in any meaningful way in the season of Advent? I think the only way that this makes sense for us to hear this in a faithful way in the season of Advent is if we learn to examine and to think about what the temple was for these people. That the temple was not just be like if this church building just caught up in flames. Because you and I know that while this building is wonderful and many of us have given a lot of money to beautifying this building, and it absolutely matters, it's not the same as the temple was for the people of Israel. The temple was the center of society, especially for the Jews. And they believed that God gave them the temple as a place that he desired to dwell among them. And as long as they had the temple, it really didn't matter how much, Israel, or how much Israel was under oppression, how close Rome got. That was kind of like their security blanket, that they believed that God is near. So ultimately, Rome can do nothing when, if we have the temple, if the temple is still standing, because the presence of our God is better and bigger and more powerful than the presence of their many gods. So it is for them a very, very significant thing when Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple. It wasn't even just about that the temple would be destroyed, but it also meant that they would have failed as a people. If, if the temple was destroyed, then they would have read that as God is finally done putting up with us. Because we read throughout the Old Testament that there is always this, this almost like playful threatening that's going on where God is saying, I'll turn my back on you if you don't repent. And then of course, what happens eventually the people repent and there, there is the temple destroyed the first time, but then the second time it is rebuilt and it's way bigger and more beautiful the, the second time around. So they would have believed at that point that God is done with us as a people if the temple is destroyed. But not only had they failed, but then God had failed. So this is wrecking them on all kinds of levels. So we failed, yes, we, we failed. We are a fallible people. 
But then what happens to all of God's promises? Because if the temple's destroyed, then God has failed. So ultimately, this produces destruction, not just literal destruction, but destruction of their personal faith, destruction of the center of society, of everything that these people had built their lives around was being destroyed. That's what Jesus is prophesying. And then there is this this little bit here about the coming of the Son of Man. And we're not going to turn there, but Jesus says at this time, Uh, At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. And this is not Jesus just referring to himself as the Son of Man. That would have been pretty unique in that time. But Jesus is drawing on language from Daniel chapter 7, where there is this dream that Daniel has that we've probably all read and maybe or maybe not have pieced it to this story. But what's happening in this dream is, is Daniel's having a dream and there are four beasts that come out of the sea. And this is where we get the phrase ancient of days. So the four beasts come out of the sea and they're about to be judged by Yahweh, the ancient of days who is sitting on his throne. And the beasts come in front of Yahweh, in front of the ancient of days, and they are judged. And some of them are put to death and some of them are, their lives are prolonged and they're allowed to live. But judgment is pronounced over the beasts. And what the beasts represent in that passage is the oppressive nations that have been oppressing the kingdom of Israel. So Daniel has this vision and the oppression, the the defeated beasts vindicate the son of man that ultimately they had been oppressing. So this is all in Daniel chapter seven and Jesus is drawing on this. So in Daniel chapter seven, the beasts are condemned. Some of them die. Some of them are allowed to live, but that vindicates the son of man and the son of man at the end of the the chapter of Daniel Daniel chapter seven, the son of man is ruling and reigning with the ancient of days on his throne. Well, of course, now we look at this and we intuit and go, oh, that's Jesus. At least good Christians do. (laughs) Speak too much about apocalyptic language. I don't want to lose anybody here. We're almost done. We're almost done, okay? Um, So Jesus is drawing on this imagery and Jesus is saying, when you see these signs, This metaphor that happened in a dream hundreds of years ago to Daniel is actually what's happening. He's saying that God's judgment is coming upon the nations of the earth. And God's judgment is not just God is angry, but God's judgment is vindicating Christ. God's judgment is revealing that Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem from Nazareth, that all of the people that were working in the temple never understood and persecuted and pushed his teachings to the side, Jesus will be vindicated when the temple is judged. And not just for the sake of judgment, but for exposing that this really is God, that this really is God's way of doing things and that God really has come to his people through Jesus Christ. So he uses this son of man language to draw on that whole story so that they would know, oh, God is gonna do something radical and we don't know what it's gonna look like if he's literally gonna come on the clouds or not. But this is vindicating the Messiah. That's ultimately what Jesus is speaking about here. Um, the religious Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests that were so opposed to Jesus had placed all of their trust in a system built around the temple in Jerusalem. And when that temple is destroyed, it indicates that Jesus and his followers are the true system. So we're now to the 
to the end of our, our little Bible exposition. So now you guys can read this passage in your devotional lives faithfully, okay? Ultimately, that is important. But what's really important for us now is that we have to learn to recognize that for there to be new life and new beginnings, old things must die. For there, for there to be new life and new beginnings, old systems, old kingdoms, old ways of doing things must die. That systems big and small, political systems, religious systems, ways of thinking, consumeristic systems, promises of social status and comfort must die. When systems and structures fail, chaos therefore ensues. Now just a, a, a thing of what I, a moment of what I am not saying. What I'm not saying is that the temple or any of these systems that apply to us are bad. God gave them the temple, but what God is ultimately trying to get them to see is that he is not confound to just being, or he is not confined, not confound, that God is not confined to the temple, that the temple served a purpose, but God's ultimate purpose is redemption through Jesus Christ. And so for us today, these systems that we live in and among, it's not that these systems are wrong or bad, but ultimately when we put our trust and we put our faith in these systems, they will ultimately fail us. They can't not fail us because they are not the only unfailing one. Do you guys hear that this morning? That the systems that we put our trust in and our security and our hope in can't not fail because they're not God. God is the only being that created all the other be beings including us who have built these systems. It's not that we need to leave and retreat and go live in little communes. That's not, I think, what the scripture is teaching us. But that ultimately our trust has to be in Christ and that any time Christ in co comes into a situation, he displaces something or someone else. That any time Christ breaks into our lives, he can't not displace another system, another idol, another king. And we see this. This is why Herod was going to have all the baby boys killed. Because Herod knew that if Christ really was the Messiah, that he would be displaced. And that is ultimately the threat that Christ poses to all of the systems and structures around us that are given to us to be used under the authority of God to ultimately help and assist in keeping people in order and in alignment. But there are times and seasons where these systems are judged and the kingdoms will fall because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God. This passage also reminds us that we just don't control very much that there is just so much in our lives that is beyond our control. And I think Christ is warning them. There, there is in here, if you read it carefully, he tells them, pray that you may be able to get out. And that's not escapism. That's not speaking about a rapture. That, that's not at all what is happening there. Christ is saying, by leaving, you will be making a, you will be drawing a line in the sand essentially, that I am not sticking it out because I know that the temple will be destroyed. To stay at that time would be still trying to put your hope in that system. So Christ says, when these signs happen, not right now, 
But when these signs happen, flee, get away, be alert, watch and pray so that you can interpret the signs of the times so that you will be able to make a distinction for yourself, for your household, that I'm not putting my, my trust in these systems. Okay, so what does this mean for us today? I think that Christ's orders to them, there are three sets of commands that he gives them that apply in all situations and in all scenarios where chaos and destruction ensue. The first is in verse 28, he says, stand up, lift up your heads for redemption is near. Uh, I think Pastor Dan sent out this week in the newsletter, a blog post from Brian Zahn. And in that blog post, he says the line, there's a big difference between waiting and doing nothing. And for us, learning to wait and not just do nothing is ultimately what we are after. In times like this, where it seems like politically we could not be more divided, that racially we almost couldn't be more divided, that economically there are many people even in this room that are literally hanging on by a thread, that in times like this, we are to, among other things, which we're going to get to in the next five minutes, we are to stand up and lift up our heads for our redemption is near, which sounds a lot like doing nothing, but it is not doing nothing. It is being faithful to Christ. Standing doesn't seem to do a whole lot until everything around you is falling apart. And then standing seems really significant. So church, I encourage you this morning, wherever you are at, stand, lift up your head. And if you are in a great place, but your neighbor, the people around you, their lives are in upheaval, their lives are in chaos, stand and stand with them. And if they can't even stand on their own, stand for them, encourage them, tell them, I'm here for you, I am with you. My God is at work in this, and I don't know, he's, I don't know how he's at work in this, but he certainly is. That the greatest light comes from the greatest darkness. So stand and lift up your heads. The second command is be careful. Do not get weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Dissipation is just self-indulgence. And then we know what drunkenness is. And I don't think these are two arbitrary um, vices, as we would call them. I don't think Jesus is saying drunkenness in the sense of college partying. I think Jesus is speaking of drunkenness as purposeful distraction, as numbing, as trying to not look reality in the face. I think that's what Jesus is speaking to here, that materialism, consumerism, these things that are so easy to slip into, especially in this season, that yes, there is a way that those things are just simply careless, but there is also a way where we have learned as people, as Westerners, we have learned to use those things to numb ourselves, to distract us, to push our eyes away from the reality of life that people are hurting, that there is real darkness. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't allow yourself. Be careful. Be careful. The worries of this life will catch you unexpectedly for there is more than what is immediate, temporal, and right in front of us. When Jesus entered the world, there was mass chaos. People had to go to their original homeland for a census and all the babies under two, year old, two years old were killed. And this was real. Like Jesus isn't speaking just about figurative stuff. Jesus is saying, I know, 
about what it is like to live in a world of chaos. And in one generation, you will know a different type of chaos. Chaos is real in our lives and we cannot be afraid to give voice to it. It's just how we give voice to it that matters ultimately. Lastly, before we come to the table, he says in verse 36, be alert and pray, or in some of your versions, watch and pray. Because it's not just enough to watch. Because if we just watch, we will just see the temple fall. And we won't understand and interpret. And we won't see where God is at work. Like watching is easy. The world can watch. The news won't stop watching. (laughs) If you put a news channel on, there's plenty of watching going on. But watching and praying watching and being discerning, watching and being hopeful, watching and not getting caught up in just the watching, but watching from a position and a posture of trying to interpret through the eyes of heaven. That is what we are called to in this season. If we can just learn to watch and pray, then we will become a people who can see God's work in places where it is not readily seen. This Advent, the signs of chaos, unfortunately, are all around us. Obviously not the exact same type of chaos, but there is personal chaos, there is political chaos, there is economic chaos, economic chaos not so much here, but in plenty of places throughout the world. There is chaos uh, in the collision of different faiths all over the world. There is military chaos. There is all kinds, there are all kinds of things to be worried and concerned about, and they are valid, they are reality. But what I would like to challenge us with this morning is can we become a people who can learn to stand and learn to watch and learn to pray and be faithful knowing that in those places of darkness, Jesus is at work that from the places of greatest darkness will eventually come the greatest light. And the beauty of this whole thing is that we don't know how or when God is gonna show up in any circumstance. But as Sidron so faithfully encouraged us this morning, that ultimately speaking, we have hope that God is at work, that God is at work in your marriage, that God is at work in your kids' lives, that God is at work in your job situation, that God is at work in this church, that God is at work in the community around us, that God is at work over at Mercy's Gate and Life Network and our missionaries overseas that we partner with. God is there and he is moving. And if the communion attendants would, uh, would come, go to their place, I'd like to read a verse from Ephesians chapter 3. In conclusion, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 say, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Church, I think what is so striking about those verses is that Paul tells us We can't even imagine the goodness that God is up to beneath the surface. That we can't even begin to pray articulately for the things that God really wants and the things that God is really doing because they're too good for even our imaginations. Like, think about that. 
for your life, for the world around us, that there are prayers that are so grandiose, that are so good inherently, that are already in the heart of God and that he has already begun doing. And we can't even imagine those things. This is the God that gives us hope in the midst of chaos because this is the God that we come and we confess and we sing about and we pray to and we read from his word and we ultimately, we come to his table to receive from him our daily bread for this season of life. So if you would, please stand with me. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.